This morning, I want to invite you to open in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat back in front of you, and I invite you to use that. There's something just that kind of we engage a little more when we actually have God's Word there in front of us versus just looking along on a screen. And so I invite you to do that. Uh, there's a lot of good Bible apps as well, and that's a great way because most of us carry a cell phone at all times. Um, and so that's a great way to have the Word of God with you is just to download an app for a translation that you love. Um, and so today I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible, um, and so that'll be what we're reading today. Um, I'm really excited about our, our student ministry. Next week you're going to be hearing from them, getting to see a video of some of the things that God did for them at camp. But if you are one of our students or one of the chaperones that went on that trip, just real fast, would you stand where you are? A lot of them are wearing red shirts today. Here they are. They went to camp. So grateful for you guys. Y'all can be seated. Um, you're going to be hearing more from them, but I just want you to see how God is at work in our student ministry. Um, we're so thankful for Noah and Brittany. They have been sick all week with COVID, and so you probably are aware that COVID is definitely spiking these days. And so anyway, so they are out this week, and so students that are wearing the red shirts, that's why uh, things didn't go quite as planned today. So anyway, so thanks for wearing the red shirts anyway. Maybe wear them again next week. All right, so that brings up the question, Chad, what are you wearing? Today, I am wearing a shirt in honor of you that are international students because a dear friend of mine, Jonathan Quofi, who came to the University of New Orleans back in 2008, um, who came to study accounting over there, became as dear to me as a brother. I mean, a true, true brother born of my own mother. And so I want you to know how, how thankful I am for you as international students. You bless our city in every way. You bless us as the people of God when you come from other nations and you come and you worship with the body of Christ here in the United States and here in New Orleans. And so thank you. You are a gift to us. And so last week I was visiting with a, a, a precious couple that has moved here from Rwanda. And uh, I was noting his shirt and I said, I have an African shirt that my, my brother from Ghana um, made for me. There's no tags in this shirt. This is a custom build right here. And so he had this made for me. And so I wear it today in honor of you. But there's also part of this shirt that's going to be part of the story um, of, of my own life toward the end of the sermon. And so stay tuned um, as we walk through this together. Well, I want to take a moment just to read the text and to kind of couch it in terms of what we're looking at. We've been talking about flourishing families. What does it take for a family to flourish? And I think that a lot of times we have a recipe card, if you will. You know, like how you pull out the recipe card for those favorite recipes. And I think most of us have an idea already of what that recipe is for what it takes for our families to flourish, to be vibrant, to grow, and all these things. And it's just an important thing for us as the people of God to be sure that the ingredients that God lists, okay, in his word, that they're on our recipe card. Now, you may uh, make a, have a, add a little flavor that's unique to your family. You may, sports may be a big part of your family that really causes your family to flourish. And so you kind of throw that in there. But we don't really see sports as like a, a mandate in the, in the scriptures. Um, you know, entertainment, certain types of entertainment, whether it's the arts or movies or music, all that, those are wonderful things. And those can be a little add in, a little hint in the recipe of a flourishing family. But that's not really what the word of God says you have to have in order to flourish, is to be into the same things and, and, and watch the same movies and stuff like that. So we need to look and say, well, what does it really cause for a family to flourish? And not only just a biological family, but the family of God. And we've walked through that as, as men lead in such a way that they're, they're leading like shepherds. 
um, you know, leading like a pastor, families flourish, the family of God and individual families. As believers and followers of Jesus Christ, as they serve like deacons, both the body of Christ as deacons, but just any believer serving like a deacon, being a servant, being exemplar in character, the body of Christ thrives, the family flourishes, and unique families flourish. And then we looked last week about living like a saint, that every person in this room, regardless of your status, is called to live like a saint based on God's word in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. And that as you do, everyone wins. When you live a godly life, everyone wins in your life because they are being impacted by God himself through you. And so it's important for us to see that these are the things that God says cause families to flourish, causes marriages to flourish, causes children to flourish, causes the family of God to flourish and to grow and to be what he intended. It's as we lean into his word. But now I wanna take us to a passage that I think is kind of hinged right here on the end Because it does relate to family in a way that maybe we don't often think of. You see, Paul's just been talking about in Ephesians chapter 5, the passage we looked at, but then he goes straight into talking to husbands and wives. At the end of chapter 5 and heading into chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, he speaks about the relationship of children and kind of some of the structures that existed in the day. And then he heads into this passage that in my Bible has this title, Christian warfare. And so I want you to stand for this moment of reading God's word because when we stand, we acknowledge this isn't just Chad speaking. This is God speaking to us as his people. So stand for the reading of God's word and hear his word from Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest and your feet sandaled with readiness. For the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all these saints. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. Lord, today I pray that that final prayer request of Paul would be ours. That the result of the preaching of your word would result in in us as your people speaking boldly about the mystery of the gospel as we should. But Lord, may you be the fuel that causes us to run the race that you've marked out for us. May you be the source of our boldness and not just guilt, not just shame. May we run this race with joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. This morning, as we go through the passage, the way that I wanna frame the points is right out of the text because part of it for me is that I want 
you and I to be able to go back to this passage after me having preached it and you to be able to literally look back in your Bible and say, there were the main points. Like just to be able to literally go through. So I'm gonna invite you today to do some underlining in your Bible. If you're not comfortable writing your Bible, you certainly don't have to do that. But maybe if you're taking notes, you could write, these are the main ideas here. And the way that I'm gonna kind of frame this is Paul goes through and kind of buried in the language is is what we call imperatives or commands, where Paul is saying, do these things. He's really giving sharp instruction to the people of God. And so those are gonna be the main ideas that we kind of build our action orders or that recipe of what it means to pray like a warrior around. Now, that idea of pray like a warrior is really gonna be the application. Everything kind of builds in a crescendo in this direction to this call to prayer. But I want you to see how it kind of takes shape through the passage. And so we're going to walk through it together. So the first thing that we see in this passage, right at the beginning of of verse 10, is this. Be strengthened. I want you to underline that. If you're willing to in your Bible, just underline, be strengthened. Because that's one word in the Greek where Paul is saying, be strengthened. At the conclusion of this sermon, I hope that we'll be able to turn back and see that our strength comes from the Lord. That every time you come back to Ephesians chapter six, you'll be able to discern that this is God's instruction for you. That it's what he desires for you is that you would truly be strengthened. Because if if I were to kind of poll in this moment, chances are you might say, I feel really weak right now. I feel very vulnerable. I feel like I don't have good footing. I feel like I'm just one little thing for maybe just like breaking. Maybe even throwing in the towel on my faith. I I don't even know what I'm feeling right now, Chad. It is the Lord's desire to strengthen you. And even in the, the grammatical construction of this word, he's saying, I want to strengthen you. I want to strengthen you. So where does my strength come from? The way Paul says to be strengthened is a bit different than we might expect. The verb is passive. That means it's, he's calling us to be acted upon, which means he's commanding us to do something that we can't do on our own. Why? Because our strength is not independent, but dependent upon the Lord and on his vast strength. Now, in American culture, we often measure strength by independence. I mean, just think about that. Let that consider that claim for a moment. That you base the idea of strength on independence. The more independent a person is, the stronger they are. In fact, we just celebrated Independence Day. And so it's truly part of our culture. Built into the fabric of who we are. The thinking often goes like this. The less you are dependent upon another person, the stronger you are. And in subtle ways, this independence has led to a way of living the Christian life that operates like this. I will do all that I can on my own. But if I can't do it on my own, then I'll ask God for help with the bit that I cannot do independently. Now, many times I've heard this. Literally, I I mean, this is the, the sort of language that I've heard. And I want you to hear it from good people. People who are, who are trying to think rightly about God and prayer and about their life in relation to other lives and how bad other lives are and the, the seriousness of their crisis versus the seriousness of other people's crises. They'll say things like this. 
I feel bad bothering God with things in my life when there are people in so much greater need than me that he needs to help. On one hand, this manner of thinking is extremely thoughtful, right? Especially as it plays out in our relationships and with resources. For example, so many of our members in this church who had damage to their home or property following Hurricane Ida, when asked if they needed anything, were quick to note that there were so many others with far greater needs than their own, and they would rather see the help go in that direction. And that's commendable. That sort of, no, I would rather see someone else helped than me is commendable. It's good. That's, that's very thoughtful. But God is not a human being. His resources are without limit. His power is never diminished. His very attention and involvement in the details of your life do not diminish his perfect attention and involvement in the details of another person's life. The greatness, power, ability, and goodness of God is so much greater than we could ever conceive. And he desires, he commands that your strength be found in him and in his vast strength. He is leaning in and telling us, I created you to be dependent on me. You can't do this without me. I created you every step of the way to be dependent on me. And it is when you act in independence of me that your life becomes miserable, that it becomes a wreck, that you feel like something's not right. F.F. Bruce notes from that this form of words, be strengthened by the Lord, has an Old Testament precedent for David. King David, in a very critical situation in his life, is said to have, been, to have strengthened himself in the Lord his God. You see, dependence on God is something that must be cultivated. For sinners like you and me, dependence on God is unnatural. The very essence of our sin is rejection of God and his good ways, but it is good for us to depend upon the Lord, to reach the deep places of desperate dependence, the prayers that plead with God, beg for his presence, acknowledge that we are lost without him, destined to failure unless he moves, is to reach the highest heights of maturity in the Lord. You see, we'll never truly be strengthened by the Lord in the vastness of his strength until we truly acknowledge the vastness of our weakness. So in this place, of being called to be acted upon by the Lord, the Lord then instructs you to do something, to put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Look at the text, verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. I want you to underline the words, put on. That's the next command. Paul first says, be strengthened. We underline that. The next imperative in this passage is put on the armor of God, the full armor of God. Now here is something to remember, especially as we consider how this passage has echoes from David's life, King David, is this. You can't put on God's armor if you're wearing Saul's. You can't put on God's armor if you're wearing Saul's armor. Remember that scene from David's life? 
where he was still a shepherd boy. His older brothers were in the army and they were faced off with the Philistines. And he is sent by his father Jesse to bring food to his older brothers. And he gets there and he sees them squared off with one another. And this huge giant Goliath taunting the people of God. Inviting somebody to come and fight him. And David in this moment says, I'll fight him. And everybody kind of laughs at him. His brothers actually get a little mad at him. Who do you think you are? But against all odds, things go that way. That he, this shepherd boy, is going to stand before Goliath. But before doing so, he's called into the presence of Saul, who was the king. And in that moment, he is told, son, I want you to put on my armor. Now just think about that. This is the king of Israel's armor. It was probably the finest armor that could be found. I mean, the craftsmanship had to have been excellent. The materials, excellent. Everything about it, superb. David puts it on, and then it says he tries to walk. He can't walk. He can't move. He can't, he can't operate in this, this foreign armor. Even though it's really good, that mail of armor, the shield, the sword, everything, it just wasn't his wasn't what he was supposed to be wearing. And so he drops it all. He takes off all of that armor and then goes and, and stands before Goliath. And Goliath taunts him, but remember David's word. He says to Goliath, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of ranks of Israel. You have defied him. David even as a young man, had completely embraced what Paul challenges you and I to do in this passage. He had been strengthened by the Lord in his vast strength. And there he stood clothed in the armor of God. Now what does Saul's armor look like today is an illustration of what we might be depending on to protect us more than the Lord. I think that answer will be as varied as there are people in this room today. For some, their protection in this life is their wealth. For others, it is their intellect. For others, it is their sense of power and control over the aspects of their life. For others, it's maybe a family member that you depend on to be your protection in this life. That if your grandmother died or your grandfather died, you really don't know what you would do because they're the anchor point for your life. The real evidence that Saul's armor was no good for David was the moment he tried to walk. And the real evidence of what armor we might be wearing will be seen in what movement we make when we're fully suited. Will we get there? We will get there in a few minutes, but only as we make our way through this passage. In other words, what you're wearing right now to defend you will give you away as to what you're truly wearing. Whether you're armed with the armor of God or you're wearing something else. During my first pastorate, as a 27-year-old fresh out of seminary, I picked up preaching where the interim pastor had left off. And he had been preaching through the book of Acts and was heading right into chapter 13. And so I determined that in that moment that I would just pick up where he left off and keep preaching through the book of Acts. And so I started with Acts chapter 13 and I turned chapters 13 through 28 into 54 sermons. Now, before you think, wow, that was really good, it was really bad. I mean, it was really, really, really bad. Long sermons, you're like, longer than these? Yes, longer than these. 
It was that bad because I was trying to figure this thing out. How do you preach this? And so what I did with the end of Acts is I went through every single word of every single verse of every single chapter. I was just like, well, it's, it's all important. And I was right about that. It is all important. But you know what I can say after 54 sermons of chapters 13 through 28 in Acts? I still didn't scratch the surface. There was still more there than could have, that could have been said and brought to light. You see, there's no past that I'm going to make it any passage of Scripture where I'm going to get it all. And I say that to say this, today as a preacher, and what you're experiencing now as a 41-year-old preacher, is that I, I love seeing big pictures now in God's Word. I love seeing how the beginning connects to the end. And I love stepping back and looking at 10 verses rather than just one verse even though it can be very beneficial to look in and just stay in one verse. And so rather today than us just hanging out and taking our time to go through what is the helmet of salvation and looking at helmets throughout the Bible and all of these different things, we're just gonna look at big picture. And I'm not gonna be able to say all that can be said of this passage today, but I hope that today we will see some of the main ideas that are here all the while while I acknowledge there's so much more that could be said. And I invite you, study the riches of God's word. And I hope that in my next pass through Ephesians chapter six, that just like you, I will see new things. As we go through, I want us to start looking at why do we need God's armor? I mean, God says very clearly in this passage, you need to wear my armor. You need to be strengthened by me. And this is how I wanna do it. I want to give you my armor. It's the same ethos of what of what Saul was demonstrating in that moment. He, he wanted to protect David, so he says, well, the only way I can do that is to put, put my armor on you. And so he's trying to do that, but God actually can. God is able to clothe us with himself. And the implements of, of armor that we're going to see are not these things that we need to really have good imaginations to think of or to stand in our closet necessarily and do every day. Although I've heard of men and women who do that. Who, who literally suit up each day walking through this passage. And I think that can be a beautiful thing, but I don't think it's required of the text. In other words, I think it's pointing us to a dependence on God, that that's the ultimate end that we're moving toward. So why do we need God's armor? We must put on the full armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. He says it very plainly, stand against the schemes of the devil. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament notes that the word translated schemes signifies the nature of the attacks. And the plural of this word suggests that they are constantly repeated or are of incalculable variety. Think about that. That Satan has an, an incalculable, you cannot think of how many ways that he wants to trick you and mislead you. And, and take you in the wrong direction. His schemes are innumerable. You, you cannot even begin to predict the ways that he wants to use ways of thinking to pull you away from a dependence on the Lord. And that works against every one of us. So rather than sitting here and beginning to speculate on all of the different types of schemes and maybe come up with categories to fit them in and all these things, I just wanna note from the text what seems to be a very prominent scheme of the devil. And that's this, to convince you and I that our struggle is against flesh and blood, both our own and that of others. That seems to be a very prominent scheme of the devil. 
as put forward in this passage because that's exactly where Paul goes in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. In other words, the people in Ephesus were thinking our struggle is against flesh and blood. Brothers and sisters, we still bite the bait of that lie today. We begin to attack one another and attack those around us as if our battle were against flesh and blood. And not only the flesh and blood of others, but our own. You see, Chad, what does that look like? When I feel like my own flesh and blood is the problem, you know what I do? I try to get rid of my own flesh and blood. And you know what that's called? Suicide. And you know what we've seen unbelievable spikes in, especially since COVID and the isolation and the quarantines and all that stuff? Suicide. Because Satan wants to convince you and me that our struggle is against flesh and blood. And so he holds out the promise of salvation that if you'll just take away the flesh and blood, then you'll be free. If you'll just do away with the flesh and blood of another, then you'll be free. His lies are working today. And we see it evidenced on the papers, on the cover of papers. In reality, our struggle is against rulers, against authorities. Look at the word, it goes on in verse 13. Is it against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens? Now, if you're like me, that's not how I think. I'm not one who every time, you know, I go into a room, I'm like, you know, I think I feel something evil in this room. Or like, you know, if ever I hear a noise in the night, I'm like, maybe it's a demon, you know, or something like that. Now, some people that I know, they think more that way. And especially as I've had the chance to travel to other continents, anytime that there are things that go on that are unexplained or mysterious or any of that kind of stuff, it certainly is said to have been in the spiritual realm. And so there's lots of things. They'll wear bracelets in other cultures to keep away evil spirits. They'll wear necklaces. They'll they'll do things on their home. They'll even go to witch doctors in order to get certain things to keep the bad spirits out. And you know what you and I often do when we look at cultures like that? We say, simpletons, simple-minded, how gullible they are. When in reality, they're taking very seriously what Paul says is our actual battle. And so you and I maybe need a little bit of an awakening in our culture. You know, consider this, maybe one of the schemes of the devil is to convince us that there's not a spiritual realm, that there really isn't anything that's battling against us, that, that Satan's really not a lot like a lion roaming around looking for someone to devour. And every time I watch a National Geographic episode about lions, the lion always goes for one that's weak or injured. He he looks for the one that's separated from the group to then take down and to devour. And so we see these sort of schemes on display in the passage, and I think we need to carefully consider it today. But then look, as we go through the text, and I want you to underline this next little phrase, because In verse 13, it says, for this reason, because that is our battle and that's what we're up against, take up. Underline the word take up because this is where Paul begins to really speak to us to say what we need to do. He says, take up the full armor of God. Take up the full armor of God. So that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. I want you to take the next passage And right there in verse 14, I want you to underline the word stand. 
Because that's what Paul calls us to do. He says, stand. He wants you to take up the full armor of God, and then he wants you to take your stand. And stand, more precisely translated, would be resist. Resist the evil one. You see, I think that that points to another scheme of the devil. He's constantly tempting you. That's what Jesus warned against when he talked about the different types of soil and the different plants that grow up. He talked about how it's the the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of this life that make that third type of soil and that plant that grows up unfruitful. So one of the schemes of the devil in our own life still remains that allure that if you had more money, if you worked a little harder to get more money, if you would just do this, then, then you'll have the good life. If you'll just give a little more attention, a little more worry to this, then it'll be okay. And those two things Jesus warned about in the Beatitudes. He warned about in the Sermon on the Mount. He warned about in individual teachings to his disciples. He warned them and he warned them and warned them about the deceitfulness of wealth and the anxieties of this life. And brothers and sisters, those are two things that consume us today. The schemes of the devil, they may be varied, but he is consistent in application. So what does it mean to stand or resist the schemes of the devil? What do we need to resist the schemes of the devil? Well, he walks through and he says with truth, truth. You need truth, like a belt around your waist. He says you need righteousness, like armor on your chest. You need the gospel, like sandals, on your feet. You need faith to hold up like a shield with which to, fl- to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one. Truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith. And I look at that list and I say, oh gosh, how dependent I am because I don't have any of those things. I don't have a righteousness of my own. I only have an imputed, a given, a received righteousness that only comes from Jesus. I don't know truth. I'm so gullible. I'm misled. But there is truth that is unchanging, found whole in God's word, revealed fully in Christ Jesus. There is the gospel, the good news of peace, of what God has done for man, for sinners like you and me, by giving his one and only son. There is faith. Paul says in Ephesians earlier, is a gift from God. God himself awakening this aspect of our humanity to believe him, to trust him. That against all odds, we would trust that Jesus and Jesus alone can save us. He's looking and he's pointing and he's doing all of these things to help us understand these realities of what it means to stand. Do you see how our standing is so dependent on Jesus? Our standing, our resisting is a constant turning to Jesus Christ. But then look, you keep going through the passage and now he says, take, take the helmet of salvation. In verse, where is it? it? Where does he say, take up the helmet of salvation? Wherever it is, find it and underline the word take. 17, thank you. I was like, there it is, 17. Take the helmet of salvation in the sword of the spirit. Paul says, take Now, it could be argued that he's just trying to break up the monotony of naming pieces of armor, and so he throws in another verb. But it's a different verb than he's used before. And so I think that it's not just him trying to break up the text, but he's trying to communicate different aspects of this battle. 
you and I, we're engaged in this battle. We have an enemy, and we are being called to take up the armor of God, to clothe ourselves with what he provides for us, and then to stand, to resist the temptations that come our way. But then we are called to take up. And these aspects of helmet and sword are offense. Think offense and defense. Think football. That may be the best warrior culture that we have today in America to think of. So think about it this way. When the defense goes on the field, what's their responsibility? It's to stand. They're supposed to stand and keep the offense from advancing. They're supposed to do a stand. I mean, like, think about all the goal line stands where you're down at the one-yard line and the, and the defense does this incredible resistance of allowing the offense to get into the end zone, and we celebrate that. That's what it means to stand. But then think about when the offense goes on the field. They put on their helmet, and they head out onto the field. Think about it that way. Think of the helmet as an offensive instrument. It's something that once you're going into the battle, you would put on and engage with the sword. But what is that sword? That sword is, that sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. Paul is very clear about this. But it's important for us to understand that people back then didn't have bound copies of God's Word. They couldn't have. Paul was writing the, what's now the New Testament at that time. So of course he didn't have bound copies of it all for themselves to use they were gathering as the people of God to hear the word of God read over them and they were remembering it and they were going into this life, into their workplace, into their neighborhoods with the word of God fresh on their minds, remembering and applying these things. And that's what Paul is wanting for you and me today is he's wanting us to go into New Orleans and all nations with the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. But I want you to consider and to think about this that as you think about all of this imagery and you think about all of this, this, this warrior imagery and you think about being on the battlefield and taking your stand and picking up the sword of the Spirit, what is it you think you're going to do with all that? Because if you're like me, you think I'm about to just run into the hardest places and I'm going to run into the social issues that face us today. And I'm going to run into all of these arenas. And I'm going to correct family members. And I'm going to put people in their places with the word of God. And I'm going to run. Notice what Paul, in this word, calls you and I to do. Take up the helmet of salvation. To take up the sword of the spirit. Pray. This is not the position that you and I think of as a warrior. We don't think about suiting up so that we can be as fiercely engaged in prayer as is humanly possible. And we wonder why our best valiant efforts, which are noteworthy and good, fall short and seem to have such a limited impact when we're striving to compare to contend with issues. I mean, what do you call someone that really takes on social issues of today that, that says maybe about an issue like racism? It says, racism is wrong. I want to take it on headlong. What do you call those people often? A social justice warrior. So they get called. And usually that's a derogatory term, a social justice warrior, almost like a lost cause, off on their own thing, you know, that sort of thing. These are men and women, teenagers, many, 
who are saying these things are not right. To you who say these things are not right, I say go further. The word of God says, yes, you're right, not right, not part of my kingdom. The Lord is speaking to you and saying, I want to arm you with the thing that will make the greatest difference in this world. God is not shaming you. He's not saying, oh, you're doing it all wrong. Stop it. Just pray. It's not like that. But so many of us, we start a campaign, we start a project, we start a ministry with a word of prayer rather than saying a central aspect to this effort is going to be prayer. And so no wonder we face opposition of various kinds. You see, during our first year with Jonathan Quofi, the, the man who gave me this shirt from Ghana, he had moved to New Orleans, was an underdog in every sense. He was one of these stories where once he got here, it was like, how did you get here? Literally no money to his name, owed a debt with the University of New Orleans he couldn't pay. When I first went to his dorm room, he had nothing but a few pairs of clothes and was sleeping on one of those plastic mattresses with no sheet or pillow. Literally nothing to his name, but that which he could fit on a backpack to bring over from Ghana. But he was resolute in his determination to get an education. Rising at 6 a.m. every morning in order to study. Started three weeks late in the semester. Ended on the dean's list and remained on the dean's list throughout his college career. An extraordinary story of overcoming. But during that first year with Jonathan, Cole and I became pregnant. Or Cole became pregnant. I was along for the ride. Expecting our first child. And after the high of the first child, the first grandbaby on both sides, all of this elation, we go for that early checkup and there's no heartbeat. There had been a heartbeat and now there was no heartbeat. And the doctor looked at us and said, I'm so sorry. I'm going to give you guys some time. And our world just cratered of going through this loss. And we were early on in the pregnancy, but it was still a loss. This, this child had, had ceased to be, and, and we were devastated. And I remember going to Jonathan and sharing with him about this. And I've never seen a man so overcome with deep compassion and sorrow for someone in sorrow. Tears welled in his eyes, and he, he said, I will pray for you, my brother. I will pray for you. And I knew that he meant it. And he prayed for me. And he prayed for me, and he prayed for me. And every time I'd see Jonathan, he said, I'm praying for you and Cole, praying for you. And I remember the day he was living in a FEMA trailer in front of Edgewater Baptist Church at the time. This was after Hurricane Katrina and all the FEMA trailers in New Orleans and stuff. And so he was in ours at that moment. And I remember walking to the trailer after a Wednesday evening service, and I walked in and I said, Jonathan, I said, we're pregnant. And so many of us, I mean, this is my characteristic. I congratulate you, like you did something. <laughs> like you knit the baby together in the womb. You wanna know what Jonathan did? I'm never, I mean, it still, it just takes my breath away to see a brother, a Christian brother, he fell on his knees in the trailer and began to sing praises to God in his African tongue. 
And he stood there on his knees for a while, just worshiping the creator who made Ava Gilbert. Worshiping the God who had healed, brought life. Worshiping the God who had heard his prayers. And there I witnessed a warrior, clothed like this, but one who had tapped into something that I had not experienced before, of what it meant to be one who interceded like a warrior. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that it continues today because if Jonathan taught me anything, it's that you pray for people, you pray with them right there in their pain and in their difficulty. And I'm hesitant to share this story, but I want you to see how this ties right back into issues that we're facing like racism. I mean, racism still exists. It may not be a a prominent issue at First Baptist New Orleans, but it is still an issue that happens in New Orleans and in every city across America and around the world. It is an issue that we have to deal with, but how do we deal with it? Can prayer actually be part of what God is doing to help bring about reconciliation, to bring about peace and unity? to bring healing and substance. This week on Tuesday, I was, or on Monday, on on July 4th, I was walking my dog around the block and I had just turned the corner on my street coming back and a pickup truck was coming by that I recognized, Zerkus. Zerkus had done the trim work on my house after the hurricane and it had just become a a good friend, a guy that I trusted and respected and Zerkus was driving down the street, hey Zerkus, Hey, man. I said, how you doing? Not good. Zerkus is a black man probably in his late 40s or, or maybe in his 50s. I said, what's going on, man? And I walked out into the street. Tears just start welling up his eyes. My granddaughter just died. Oh, my heart dropped. I said, oh, Zerkus, I'm so sorry, brother. I put my hand on his shoulder and he said, man, she was so young. Her birthday was yesterday. She was killed in a car accident today. I said, man, I am so, so sorry for your loss. I said, I'm gonna be praying for you. And I said, can I pray over you right now? He was like, sure. And so I prayed over him right there in the street. And listen, you say, well, Chad, you're a pastor. You're supposed to do that kind of stuff. No. Please don't do that. Please don't make prayer for people something that pastors do. Uh, That's not not the design. This is something that we as God's people are called to do. So I prayed over him. He said, thanks, man. And he drove off. This morning on my way into church, getting off of 610 on the canal, the guy that built my house who connected me with Zerka said, hey, Chad, I'm on your left. And I look over and he's in the car next to me. Hey, man, what you doing? Hey, man, I just got back from Zerkus's granddaughter's funeral. Really? He said, yeah, man. And let me tell you what he said. He got up in front of his entire family, and he said, I want y'all to know something that happened to me last week where I knew that God was with us. He said, a pastor, a white pastor, prayed for me in the middle of the street And he said, and I can't even tell y'all what God did for me in that moment. Guys, God has got us right now. He said, well, Chad, you sure are the hero of that story. No. 
Jonathan Quofi, who taught me to pray for people. Other pastors in my life who taught me to pray with people in their hurt. Those are the heroes, but brothers and sisters, God's word, God is the hero. God is who desires to arm you and I with this most incredible weapon, the sword of the spirit to then go and pray. To pray and to be alert in our city for the hurting. To pray for those in your sphere of influence, your family members, your coworkers, your neighbors, people that work with you pray for them and to pray over them and to pray with them. And then things like even racism get fronted head on as they hear, no, race doesn't separate within the body of Christ. That's not part of our story. Brothers and sisters, we are called to pray. And so in this moment, we're just gonna have music playing And I wanna open these steps. You may need to come and just spend time just praying before your maker today. Praying for something specific that's weighing on you. But brothers and sisters, we are called as God's people to pray. And when we do, the family of God and your individual family will flourish. So you can sit in silence right where you are. You can come and bow. But for these next few minutes, we just want to pray. Let me pray for you. God, I pray that in this moment, As we heed your word as those called to do battle, we will realize, God, that it makes perfect sense that our battle would be prayer because our battle is not against flesh and blood. We can't fight this battle in the same way we would go out and fight on a field of war. So Lord, please, would you meet with us in this moment as your people, as we pray together, as we pray for unity, as we pray for healing, as we pray for the advancement of the gospel. As we pray for those that are sick, God, please hear our prayers. I'm here to pray with you as your pastor in this moment, and I'll be sitting right here ready for you, but you just pray over these next few minutes.